We've been following the life of David, and we have seen David rise to great heights. He began with this amazing conquest of Goliath, and then as captain of the guard in Saul's army, he led the children of Israel to great victories and was uh, seen as being in many ways the rescuer of Israel. David endured Saul's jealousy as Saul tried to kill him. David, we saw him rise to the heights of being king in Israel after Saul died and David was moved to becoming king over Judah and Israel. He defeated the Philistines. He conquered Jerusalem. He moved the ark to his capital city. We saw David establish really an empire in the Middle East. He has been declared by God that he will be a great man, that he is a great man among the greatest of men of all history. He's been promised an everlasting kingdom. And to this point, there only remains one thing left for David to conquer. Only one thing that stands between David and what he wants out of life. Well, better yet, one person. And that person is God. And so today, we watch David wage war against God. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, page 221 in the church Bibles. Today, we're looking at a very famous story. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. Many of you may be familiar with this story, some not. Let me review the salient points. David is king of Israel. He's a married man. He's on his roof one day. He looks down and sees a beautiful woman. Her name is Bathsheba. She too is married. David decides that he wants to sleep with Bathsheba, invites her to his palace, sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. David, wanting to cover up his sin, invites her husband, a man named Uriah, home from the battlefront. Uriah's off at war. David invites him home and sends him to his house to sleep with his wife, hoping that if he sleeps with her, he can pass off this baby as being Uriah's instead of his own. Uriah refuses to do so because as an honorable man and a soldier, he refuses to go home while his comrades in arms are, are suffering on the battlefield. David, realizing that he can't make Uriah do this, decides instead to cover it up by sending Uriah back to the front lines, this time with a sealed message to Joab, the leader of Israel's armies. In that sealed message that Uriah is carrying is a note in which David says to Joab, put Uriah where the fighting is the fiercest and then pull back from him so that he is killed. Joab does this. Uriah is uh, murdered. David takes Bathsheba to be his wife, but God is not happy with what David has done. So God sends the prophet Nathan to come and convict David of his sin. Nathan comes and he tells David a story, a parable, if you will, about a rich man and a poor man. Rich man has lots of sheep. A poor man has one little baby ewe lamb. The rich man is in entertaining company. And so he decides that rather than kill any of the many sheep he has, he's going to take the little ewe lamb from the poor man, kill that and feed that 
as hospitality to his guest. Well, David hears this story and is absolutely infuriated. He says that the man who would do such a thing should have to pay back four times as much what he took and actually should deserve death. It's at that point that Nathan says to David, it's you, you're the man. What you have done here is wrong in God's eyes and David is cut to the heart. And he confesses that he has sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to him, because you have confessed the Lord is not going to kill you, but he is going to take away the son that Bathsheba is pregnant with. And that son ends up dying in the story. Well, we begin our story and what we have to see what God has to say to us in chapter 11, verse number one. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Springtime is a time that kings in the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean traditionally went to war. We can see evidence of that even today. What month are we in? March. March. March is named after Mars, the Roman god of war. This is when people went to war. David is not going to war. And there's a sense in which there's a bit of an ominous feel to this in this first verse. And that ominous feel is summarized in the use of the word send. Now, the word send is a seemingly innocuous word. It's a common Hebrew word. It's used all the time in the Old Testament to mean exactly what you think it means, to send. But it also has sort of a darker side to it. The word send has associated with it the idea of power and authority. Because to send someone demonstrates that you have power over them, that you have authority over them. And that's why this Hebrew word send shows up in the greatest concentration in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel through 2 Kings, where we have the Israelite monarchy and people are ordering everybody around. The word send occurs quite frequently in those books. It also occurs in greatest concentration in the book of Exodus, chapter 3 to chapter 12, when God and Pharaoh are having a contest to see who's in charge. Those are the two places where the word send appears most often with this idea of power and authority. But the chapter in which the word send appears most frequently in all the Old Testament is right here in our story. Let me show you some of the uses in verse number one already. We saw David sent Joab off to war. David has power over Joab to command him around. He sends him off to war. Verse number three, after David sees beautiful Bathsheba on her rooftop, he says, David sent someone to find out about her. Verse number five, sorry, verse number four, David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Verse number six, after David finds out that she's pregnant, it says, David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. Verse number eight, after Uriah arrives in Jerusalem, it says, David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. It's a different word, but it's a related word. Verse number 12, 
when Uriah refuses to sleep with his wife while his comrade in arms are on the front lines. It says verse 12, then David send him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. Verse number 14, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Here in this story in chapter 11, David is exercising power. And for the first time we see that David's power has begun to corrupt him. That he is now sending people and moving pieces on the chessboard not to accomplish God's will but to accomplish his own will. He views Bathsheba as someone that he wants to use for his own pleasure. Uriah as someone to cover up what he has done. Joab as someone to do uh, what David was unable to do himself and that is to eliminate Uriah. And what we see David doing is he's sending people and sending things in order to make things happen the way that he wants them to happen. It's an abuse of power. That what David is really doing here is he is trying to remove God from the throne of power and David is trying to take that seat himself. That David wants to be in charge, that what he's doing is he's not sending Joab or Bathsheba or, jo- uh, 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 or Uriah to accomplish what God wants accomplished, but to accomplish what David wants accomplished. That's why the charge that God lays at David's feet is that of despising the Lord. Look in chapter 12, verse number 9. When God confronts David for his sin, he said, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Despise. That's the word that's used of Goliath when he looks at David, that he despised him. It means to think little of, to disdain, to ignore, to treat with contempt. God's saying, David, that's what you've done to me. You've tried to minimize me. You've tried to push me to the side. He's tried to take God off his throne and David's tried to take his place. That's what we mean when we say that David is attempting to wage war against God. That David's real problem is not that he needs to go to sex counseling. It's not that he needs more anger management training. His real problem, the root of his problem, is that he thinks too little of God. That God says, why do you think so little of me? Why do you despise me in your heart? Now, how is David despising the Lord? Well, there are four ways from this story that I think that David thinks too little of God. The first is that David despises God's power. In this story, David despises God's power. We've already looked at the word send and shown that it has some sort of connections with authority and with power. But I skipped over a couple of uses of the word send in chapter 11. Look back there if you will. Not only is David sending people and sending things and trying to manipulate what's going on. Look in verse number 5. When Bathsheba becomes pregnant, it says the woman conceived and sent 
word to David saying, I'm pregnant. See, David can control the fact that he invites Bathsheba to come sleep with him, but what he can't control is that she gets pregnant. That's outside of his control. Likewise, when he sends for Uriah, he has the power to do that. He's the king. He can summon a warrior back from the front lines. He can even send Uriah to his house, but what he can't do is make Uriah sleep with his wife. David doesn't have the power to do that. In verses 18 and 20 of chapter, 22 of chapter 11, Joab, it says, sends word to David that yes, we've killed Uriah, but we suffered heavy losses in doing so. You see, all David wanted to have happen was for Uriah to die. But on the battlefield, Joab's like, look, we can't just have one guy die. David loses many good men. And that's because David can't control what happens on the battlefield. He can't have Uriah murdered. But he can't keep his side from losing uh, other people as well. And you get this sense in chapter 11 that although David has some level of power and some level of authority, and he's able to send people here and to do this, that he doesn't have enough power and that there is somebody who is working behind the scenes to foil his plans that's too powerful for David. And that's the Lord. That David has underestimated God's power that he thinks he's going to get away with it. It's interesting that in chapter 11, the word send is never used in connection with the Lord. But in chapter 12... It's only used that way. Look at verse number one of chapter 12. As David is sending people here and there and trying to manipulate circumstances but unable to control everything that's happening, chapter 12 opens with this verse. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And in chapter 12, God is reestablishing his control and his authority over what's going on. David simply doesn't have the power to pull off what he wants. And he's underestimated just how strong God is. You ever watch the news and see stories about politicians who get caught having an affair? I watch those and I think to myself, didn't you know you were going to get caught? Like it always works out that way. And there's some elaborate cover-up scheme where they've got this, this lie that they've been telling and this thing that they've been doing. And everyone has sort of a different story. But every single one of them, you get done and you're like, well, yeah, duh. Of course, you, you've got to know you're in a public office. You've got to know people are going to be investigating your life. How did you think you were going to get away with this? Well, it's because they think they have the power to pull it off. That's what David's doing here. He thinks he's got power. He's the king. He can make things happen. But the problem is he's underestimated God's power. That as strong as David is, God is so much stronger. And then in chapter 11, God is working behind the scenes to make sure things happen exactly the way God wants them to happen. David's not going to get, get away with this. And the first thing that David has done is he's despised the Lord's power. The second thing that David has despised is God's holiness. God's holiness. Look in chapter 11, verse 25. When David tells Joab, look, you've got to kill Uriah, one of your own soldiers. He says to Joab, verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. 
Literally in Hebrew, it says, don't let this thing be seen as evil in your eyes. David's trying to tell Job, hey, look, I know this looks bad, but it's not that bad. But interestingly, in verse number 27, the very last phrase of the verse literally says in Hebrew, but the thing David had done was seen as evil in the eyes of the Lord. See, David has somehow rationalized to himself. I don't know how he does it. He somehow rationalized to himself that this thing's not that bad. Maybe he thinks, hey, warriors die in battle all the time. Don't worry about it, Joab. It's okay. Maybe he thinks to himself, kings are supposed to be able to take other people's wives. That's what it means to have power. Maybe he thinks, I've suffered so much for this kingdom. We wouldn't even have all this stuff if it wasn't for me. Maybe he thinks to himself, look, I've served for so long and done such a good job. What's just this one thing? Whatever it is, David has rationalized in his mind that this thing is not that bad. But he has completely underestimated God's holiness. It is absolutely, despicably evil in God's sight. There's no, there's no gray area here for the Lord. He's not wondering, if might this be okay? In God's eyes, this is despicably evil. What David has done to Bathsheba, what he's done to Uriah, God absolutely hates. It's evil. Also in the news, we often see stories about sex abuse scandals, often in the Catholic church. Now there are rumors uh, or stories in a Protestant denomination called Sovereign Grace Ministries. And you read these stories about priests or pastors who abused their power and abused their trust and treated children in just literally God-awful ways. Yet there was cover-up and there were people in positions of authority and power who tried to sweep that under the rug or move people into different positions or think that's not that bad or maybe they've rationalized, well, this person has served so faithfully, maybe this one thing is not so bad. It's a complete underestimating of God's holiness. Never is that ever anything other than an abomination. There's no way to sweep that kind of behavior under the rug, to pretend it's not that bad, to rationalize it, to justify it, to think there is any reason why behavior like that should ever be covered up or allowed or accepted. In David's case, he's made the same mistake. He's underestimated God's holiness. God cannot abide by what David has done. There is no way for God to turn a blind eye to this. The third way that David has despised the Lord is he has despised God's generosity. Look in chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And look at this phrase. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Not saying, David, have you forgotten what I've done for you? You were a nobody. You were a shepherd from a no-name family. I've made you king over Israel. I've given you women. I've given you wives. I've given you everything you could possibly want. And if somehow I hadn't given you enough, I would have given you even more. But David has despised the Lord's generosity. 
He's not thinking about all that God has given to him. He's thinking what he doesn't have. And instead of realizing that God has blessed David in almost unimaginable ways, an eternal kingdom, a name among the greatest men in the history of mankind, all this stuff God has given to him. But David's saying it's not enough. I really want Bathsheba. Now that would make me happy. It's interesting that the Lord keeps referring to Bathsheba, not by her name, but as Uriah's wife. There's a reason for that. It's because David knows who Uriah is. They're not strangers. Uriah is one of David's mighty men. He's actually one of the 30. That the king's elite guard those super soldiers that he knows every one of them by name and interacts with them and goes to battle with them, Uriah is one of them. That's why when Uriah is sent from the front lines and comes into the palace, there's no introductions. It's not, hi, I'm David. Hi, I'm Uriah. Nice to meet you. No, they know each other very well. Uriah doesn't fall down on his knees and say, your servant He's a warrior just like David is. Yes, David is the king, but David and Uriah have fought in many, many battles together. They know each other well. That's why they simply just break into conversation. How's it going on the front line? And Uriah is reporting what's going on. It's because you can say they're friends. Shania Twain, a famous country music singer, wrote an autobiography recently and in one of the in the autobiography there's a chapter about her husband ex-husband now having an affair <clears throat> and in the book she tells a story about how she began to suspect that he was being unfaithful and so she confided in her best friend and said I think I think my husband is doing something he shouldn't be doing I think he's having an affair and her best friend kept telling her I think you're imagining this you're just being jealous you're being paranoid about it I think it's okay Well, it turns out that her husband was having an affair and it was with the best friend. And you think, how incredibly ungrateful. All the generous things a friend has done to turn around and do that to them. That's what David's done. But not just to Uriah, his friend. He's done this to God who's given him so much stuff that God is sitting there dumbfounded saying, David, have you forgotten what I've done for you? But the problem is, is David has despised the Lord's generosity. There's a fourth thing that David despises about the Lord. Not only does he underestimate God's power, God's holiness, God's generosity. He underestimates God's judgment of sin. He despises the Lord's punishment. Now, this one is a little bit harder to see. And that's because when Nathan comes to David and tells him this story about these two men with their sheep, David has no idea that he's talking about himself. And so when he pronounces judgment, it seems like it's an unbiased, harsh judgment. What he says is the man should pay back four times what he's taken. That sounds pretty harsh and pretty serious. But look what the Lord says to David. Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, of chapter 12. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house 
because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Now, David has said the man deserves to pay back four times what he's taken. Many people have noted that before David's life is over, he will lose four children to sin. This baby that's born here and dies, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. He does indeed pay back four times for the life he took from Uriah. But it's even harder than that. God says, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Not only are you going to lose these sons, You are going to face a coup. There is going to be a rebellion. You're going to lose your wife. You're going to lose everything, David. I am going to bring upon you judgment that you can't even begin to fathom. And even David, who in his most righteous, when he doesn't even think he's talking about himself, thinks, well, it would be four times as much. God says, you've still underestimated how angry I am about what you've done and how severe my punishment is going to be. I have a card in my office that someone at the church gave me. It's a great little reminder, and so I keep it there. It says this. Sin never gives us what it promises to bestow. It takes us further than we intended to go. Keeps us longer than we intended to stay. And then listen. And costs us more than we intended to pay. That even when David is his most righteous filled with his most righteous indignation. He's underestimated God's judgment and punishment of sin. David's mistake in this chapter is that he has despised the Lord. He's despised God's power, God's holiness, God's generosity, and God's judgment. Now what does this mean for us today? Well, in order to get through to David, God sent Nathan to him to talk about somebody else so that David would realize he was talking about him. I think this morning God has sent David to us, not to talk about David, but to talk about us, to get through to us. And the question for us is, how have we despised the Lord? How have we thought too little of God's power? God's holiness, God's generosity, God's judgment of sin. Now that's worth thinking about in any number of areas of life. But the one I want us to think about together this morning is in the area of adultery. By adultery, what I mean is that any two people who are having sexual relations with one another outside the bounds of marriage, where one is married to someone else, By adultery, I mean what Jesus says. If there is a person having sexual relationships or married to somebody who is divorced, who does not have a lawful divorce in God's eyes, there are lawful divorces in God's eyes, but there are also unlawful divorces in God's eyes. 
in that situation, Jesus says that's an adulterous relationship. By adultery, I also mean pornography and emotional affairs, emotional adultery. Jesus calls these adultery of the heart. And the question for us today, as we think about those topics as friends, look, I don't want to be naive. I know that there are some here this morning whom God has said, this message is for you. That God is speaking to you this morning. That God has come to bring you the story of David, not to talk about David, but to talk about you and I. To say, listen. And I know that there are four lies that Satan is currently telling you if you are in that situation right now, if you are engaged in adultery. And those four lies correspond to the four things that David misunderstood about God. The first lie is this. I know that you are thinking that you're going to be able to pull this off. I know that you think that you've got the power to do this. I know that you think you can cover this up. I know that you think that you've got a great story, that you've got a great alibi, that you've covered all your tracks, that you delete the cell phone messages every time they come in. I know that you think you've got this taken care of, but do not underestimate the power of God. You cannot win against him. That David was the king of Israel. He had everything at his disposal. It was a monarchy, a dictatorship. Everybody had to listen to him and he didn't have enough power. What hope is there for you and I? When David chooses to commit adultery, he wages war against God and God is a fearsome enemy to have. When you and I engage in adulterous activity, when we view pornography, when we allow our hearts to dream about being married to somebody else, that God sets up his armies against us and listen, please, you will not win. No matter how good you think I are at covering your tracks, he will not allow you to get away with it. There's too much you can't control. There's too much I can't control. The second lie that Satan is telling you this morning is that somehow what you're doing is not that bad. That you too are underestimating God's holiness. Maybe you've rationalized it to yourself and said, but if you only knew my spouse, if you only knew the way he treats me or the way she treats me, if you only knew what I've been through in life, if you only knew how hard this is, if you only knew this soulmate that I found, if you only knew the, the little bit of comfort that I find in reading these romance novels and fantasizing or in viewing pornography, if you only understood it's not really that bad, what's the big deal? Listen to me. David is the man in the Old Testament who has the greatest integrity. That's, his, that's what he is. He's a man of integrity. And if David can be deceived into thinking what he did is okay, what's going to keep us from being deceived? I mean, look at David. We can read this and go, this is horrendous. This is terrible. But David actually thinks it's all right. And if the man with the greatest integrity in the Bible and the Old Testament can be deceived, please, you and I can be deceived too. Do not listen to Satan's lie. Do not underestimate God's holiness. It is wrong. The Bible is very clear about adultery, about pornography, about emotional affairs. God is absolutely holy and will not put up with it. The third lie 
I know that Satan is telling you that somehow you deserve this. That you deserve a little happiness in life. That you deserve a little relief. That you deserve a little a time to yourself. Something that you can do that brings you pleasure and you joy. I know you think that you deserve this. That, that somehow you're owed this. Don't underestimate God's generosity. He's given you so much. He's given me so much. It's easy to look on the things we don't have and to miss the things we do have. And if you turn and look back to God, you realize that God has blessed you with so much and that what you're doing in this adulterous behavior is cutting you off from God's blessings. That God is saying, look, if you somehow hadn't had enough, I would give you more. That's how generous God is. Look, you can't even begin to imagine the generosity of God. That I know you think that what you're doing is going to make you happy. I know that you think it's giving you pleasure. I know that you think that somehow it's making you feel alive in life. But what you're really doing is you're dying. And you're missing the generosity that God has. He has open hands to give you everything you could possibly need in life and so much more. And the last lie that I know Satan is telling you is that you're going to be able to handle the consequences. Sin does have some level of pleasure that's associated with it. And I know that right now Satan is telling you, yes, there'll be consequences, but you'll be able to handle it. It's worth it. But staying up late, and not, late at night when no one is around and watching pornography, that you're gonna, that's going to be okay. That reading <clears throat> romance novels and fantasizing about having a different husband than the one that you have, that whatever the consequences are, you'll be okay with that. That this affair that you're engaged in, this relationship you should have nothing to do with, that yes, it'll be bad if somebody finds out, but you'll be able to handle it. Please listen to me. David is a man after God's own heart. He is a superstar among superstars. And God absolutely crushes him. David cannot handle the punishment God meets out. Look, if anybody was going to get away with somebody, if anything, anybody was going to get a mulligan, if anybody was going to get a pass, it's going to be David. He doesn't. And even in his most, right, even if you imagine what would be the worst possible consequences I could think of, you're still too far short of what God is going to do. Please hear the story. Listen. Listen to what God is saying to you. Do not underestimate God's judgment for sin. If David, who is the king, if David is who the man of integrity, if David, a man after God's own heart, if David, who's been promised an eternal kingdom, can't get away with this, what makes us think we're going to? Think about that for a minute. Do you really think God is going to let you and me get away with it when he didn't let David? Think about that for a second. I said that David underestimated God in four areas. It's actually five. Not only does David underestimate God's power and his holiness, his generosity, and his judgment, David underestimates God's grace. 
that when David finally realizes how furious God is with him, and when he feels God's hand crushing him down, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And the moment he says it, the moment, there's no extended period, there's no time, there's no list of things that David has to do. The moment David acknowledges that he is a sinner and that he has sinned against Almighty God, Nathan says to him, the Lord has taken away your sin. Remember what David said about the man who took the sheep in the parable? He said he's got to pay four times over, but he said something else. Go back and read it sometime tonight or at other time. He says the man deserves to die. Now, when it comes to sheep stealing, that's a bit of a hyperbole. The Mosaic law does not recommend the death penalty for stealing sheep. But the Mosaic law does demand the death penalty for adultery. What David doesn't know is he's condemning himself. He absolutely deserves to die. Not just his four sons. Not just this coup and this rebellion. David himself deserves to die. God's law demands that David be stoned. That's what it says. It is in black and white. There's no gray about this whatsoever. But amazingly enough, when David confesses his sin, God says to him, you're not going to die. But he does say, your son is still going to die. And it turns out that David's son dies in his place. Now, at the first reading of the story, it seems like it's David and Bathsheba's baby, this baby that's just been born. But that's not ultimately what God has in mind. It is a baby from David and Bathsheba, but it's a baby that's going to be born generations later. Same two people, David and Bathsheba. But it's their son, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, who's going to die in his father David's place. That David deserved death because God's holiness demands it. But God's grace was so far beyond anything David could have ever hoped for or dreamed for that God himself gave his son to take his place. That David deserved separation from God for eternity. That David deserved death on the spot. But instead, God gives him grace. Yes, there are still consequences for sin. Yes, the sword will remain in David's house for the rest of his life. But once David confesses it, God's grace is so big and so amazing that God comes and walks with David through those consequences. Bad things are going to happen to David because of what he's done here. But when God shows up, David is going to bless the Lord because God's going to be good to him in the midst of the consequences. That's so amazing. God's grace is unbelievable. Amen. David can't fathom it in the least. And the same is true for you today. The adultery you're engaged in is wicked, vile, evil. God absolutely hates it. You will not get away with it. I promise you. I, if you get away with this and you are a child of God, that means God's a liar. And he's not a liar. By doing this, you have waged war against God and David conquered everybody else. But he can't conquer God. 
And I don't care how successful you've been. I don't care how powerful you are. I don't care how wonderful you are. I don't care about your personality. I don't care any of those things. You can have all the credits in the world going for you. If you fight against God, you will lose. But if you confess, you have no idea the grace that God is going to give you. You can't even begin to imagine that if you thought of the best possible situation, the good that God could bring out of it, you would fall far short of what God is going to do for you in and through Jesus. That your sin and my sin deserves death. But God has already provided the the punishment for our sin in Jesus. And that all you have to do is confess that's it. All David does is realize the light goes on and he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And once he does that, he's forgiven. And God's grace, which is far greater than David's sin, comes in and rescues David. And at the end of the story, it says that David went and worshiped the Lord. That is the offer to you today. I know you think you're unforgivable, but you're not. I know that you think that this has gone on too long. It hasn't. I know that you think that there's no way out, but there is. I know that you think that what you've done is so miserable and so terrible that God could never take you back, but that's a lie. It's not true. Look, David murdered his friend's wife, uh, his friend, and took her his wife. That's bad. And God took him back. Whatever you've done, you're not beyond the grace of God. Now, listen to me. We all believe Satan's lies. He is a master deceiver. If somehow right now you have believed his lies and you're in the middle of some form of adulterous relationship, some form of adulterous activity, and you think any of those lies, please, please, at least don't believe the last one. And the last one is, is that God's grace can't rescue you. It can, it will, I promise you. Whether it's pornography, whether it's emotional affairs, whether it's sexual immorality in an adulterous relationship. Look, what David did was horrendous and God forgave him. Please, you're not beyond God's grace. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we're asking that you would do what only you can do. For some in this room, they need conviction. They are despising the Lord. Lord God, and I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would bring upon them your very hard and serious conviction. May their eyes be open like David's eyes were open. Lord, for some in this room, we need the fear of God to be put into us. We need to realize if David will not, did not get away with this, we must not come anywhere near this kind of behavior. But Holy Spirit, we also, there are some people in this room who need to hear the message that God's grace is greater than their sin. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm trusting you to speak to each person's heart with the message that they need to hear. To those who need conviction, would you bring conviction? To those who need to tremble in God's presence, may they tremble in God's presence. And to those who need to know that God's grace is available, would you tell them that and bring them to repentance? In Christ's name, I'm asking you to do this. Amen.